Hello and welcome to the Sensibly Speaking Podcast. This is Chris Shelton, the critical thinker at large, coming at you on any podcasting platform that matters and with video here on YouTube. All right, this week I am welcoming guest Dylan Ames. He is actually a local Denver author and he has written um, Lies Your Psychologist uh, Told You and also The New Happiness Formula. So uh, anyway, we'll put links to those in the show notes here. Dylan, welcome to my show. Thanks so much, Chris. It's good to be with you. I imagine you're about a mile away from me. Yeah, exactly. We're having to do the COVID commute here, uh, i.e. Zoom chats, because we can't do live. I I actually wish you were, we didn't have this pandemic, because I like it when I get local people, I get to bring them in the studio and talk face to face i never I, I i haven't had to i haven't had a chance to do that since i actually did set up my new space here but anyway whatever well as a writer i like being by myself so this works just yeah fine. fair enough i definitely understand that well okay so uh we're going to talk about lies your psychologist told you and this is a book you have written it is uh laid out a bunch of claims that are found in psychologist texts or magazines or articles or whatever, but it also then includes the counterclaim or pushback or, or critical thinking on, the, on these various things. And you have a whole laundry list of them, um, some of which I have lesser and more degrees of agreement with on some of those things. But generally speaking, I think you and I are on the same page on a, on a great deal of it. And I certainly, certainly um, back up the, the effort here to apply some critical thinking and some skepticism to the subject of psychology. What was it that prompted you to write this book? I mean, it's not a small thing sitting down writing a whole book. What, what, what was it that got you so interested in this that you decided this needed to be done? Yeah, Chris, um, you know, one thing first you, you mentioned about possible disagreements. I'd love to, you know, if we have time, I'd maybe go into some of those too, because it might turn out that we don't disagree after all. It, you know, it'll just really, uh, yeah. it'll depend. I think that um, the title, for one thing, Lies or Psychologist Told You, kind of a catchy title, kind of gets a reaction, which is why I chose it. I do want to be clear from the outset, I have nothing but respect for psychologists. I'm not some like anti psychology, <laughs> you know, I was a psychology major. I have, a lot of respect for psychology. It's what I study. Cool. So I just want to get that out there first. Um, long time ago, I, I, I do a lot of different things. Um, and that's been going on for a long time. Long time ago, I did. I learned hypnosis. And I was just always interested in that type of stuff. NLP and hypnosis and, you know, ways to make changes fast. Tony Robbins type stuff. And um, ever since I was 18. And I ended up serving as a smoking cessation advisor at Stanford Medical Center um, after that, even though I smoke cigars religiously, and I still do. Um, I went back to school for psychology and philosophy and loved studying them so much that I eventually was asked to either graduate or leave um, <laughs> because I was being paid to be there. And so, I mean, I was on my, like, fifth graduate course in philosophy, and I wasn't even a graduate student. Um, I, I just couldn't get enough of, of these classes. And so um, I, after I graduated, I just kept, you know, doing research on my own and, and looking up things. And I wrote a book on the science of happiness. And um, one of my favorite books in psychology is a book 
uh, called 50 Great Myths in Popular Psychology, written by um, a few people, but Scott Lilienfeld, a great, you would love it, a great psychologist and critical thinker about psychology. And unfortunately, he just passed away about two weeks ago. It was written up in the New York Times. He was like 55 years old. Um, I mean, this guy was incredible. And I really do urge you at home, too, to look Scott Lilienfeld up, um, a great critical thinker and a great psychologist. And I read this book, uh, 50 Great Myths of Popular Psychology. And most of the myths were things that some of them I had believed, even though I had been a major in psychology. Um, And then um, some of them were just more like common beliefs, like uh, you only use 10% of your brain. Um, But some of the ones I remember from there were one of the myths was hypnosis can make you do something that you wouldn't have normally done. That is a myth that most people believe. Um, Or that another myth is that hypnosis resembles sleep. Um, And I had over the years, I realized that I had accumulated a bunch of different um, loosely a bunch of different myths that weren't in that book. Some of the hypnosis stuff was, but I added to that. Um, some of the, these myths I had just kind of lying around. Um, for example, I had interviewed uh, Professor Noam Chomsky at MIT um, on the myth of ape language. So we often hear about like Coco using sign languages, you know, and I had, most psychologists will not to the, that now you won't hear that very often anymore. This was like in the 70s and 80s, they used to think that apes could sign. Um, You'll hear it occasionally from psychologists, not that often. But I had done an interview on the myth of ape language, and it got cited in a bunch of books. And I thought, well, that would be a great thing to talk about, since it's obviously still uh, something that people believe. Um, And a lot of things in my psychology textbooks, I was finding um, that... It just didn't, they, they had been, ideas that had been debunked years ago, um, or they weren't giving the other side. That was a big one. So, yeah, or it, the complete story, maybe. Yes. And there is a defense to it sometimes. Mm-hmm. I would even, I would even make a defense in some cases for this, but sometimes I think it would be irresponsible. I mean, if you say that antidepressants are generally effective, that is a highly, highly controversial point. Yep. Some of the things that you point out in your book are absolute. I mean, actually, I really didn't have much of an argument with anything that I read in your book in terms of how you were breaking down or debunking certain hyperbolic aspects of some of these claims. I, I want to make sure, of course, in talking about these, that where things have been validated, we go, okay, well, that's that's cool. That's That's the good part. But they took it too far, you know, or they, they engaged in the hyperbole or something, right? Things like that. Are, do you find that kind of claim or that kind of situation to be more common or just straight up stuff just being made up? Oh, no, not, not stuff. I mean, stuff being made up is like, is extremely rare. Mm-hmm. I mean, that is, um, you know, I write about it. I mean, they're interesting cases, um, there's a guy named Mark Hauser at Harvard. Uh, there's a guy, Diedrich Staple, who is a star psychologist in the Netherlands, who literally made up 65 studies. And I mean, fascinating studies. Uh, one of them involved um, uh, 
he, he, he showed that white people will sit farther away from black people if the environment around is dirty as trash. And he, so he just he made did, that up. Well, I'll tell you. So what he did was he had a row of chairs and um, he, he would all the chairs would be empty except for the first chair. And the chair would either be a white person or a black person would be sitting in that chair. Mm-hmm. The participant would come in and they would have to pick a chair to sit in. Mm-hmm. If the area had trash around it, the white person would sit away from the black person. Okay. Okay. So and he, so, so, so he were, really conducted that study. He really did that work. Well, let me tell you. No, okay. no, let, me, let me tell you. So this is what he claimed. Okay. And he, he claimed that um, meat eaters were more selfish than vegetarians. And he somehow showed this. I'm telling you, the, these studies were on in the newspaper. This guy was a star. He was like a Steven Pinker. Um, and so it so one day his colleague pulls him, invites him over to dinner and says to him, hey, man, two of your students, your grad students are accusing you of um, academic fraud. And he says, I mean, this is like an upstanding, you know, and he goes, what are you talking about? And his friend says, his friend and colleague says, um, you know, they said that some of your data in one study is the exact same data from other studies. You just copy and pasted data. That doesn't make any sense. How could you have the exact same data? And he, he says, oh, it must have been some mistake. Of course, I wouldn't do that on purpose. So he leaves and the colleague is not convinced. Colleague. Uh, tells another colleague. Colleague pulls him aside two days later. Finally, Diedrich Stable up against the wall. He takes, he goes over to the train station where he supposedly conducted the study with the chairs. There was a location he describes of this room with chairs, and he looks around the train station and he can't find a place that matches that. And he goes, the jig is up. He immediately goes home and tells his wife. His wife didn't even know. He made up 65 studies. He ended up writing an autobiography recently called Derailed, where allegedly, I have to say, uh, he plagiarized. <laughs> after after admitting, by the way, he admits to all of them. Okay. So he did come clean. He did. He came clean, but... Um, he basically said it was the system's fault. The system was so loose that anybody could have just sat there and made stuff up. They should have had a tighter rein. So, yeah, yeah he basically just blamed other people. Yeah, exactly. Um, Anyways, Chris, I'm sorry. That was a ramble. No, no, that was tot- that was a perfectly legit answer. I'm completely happy with that. But I don't know if I answered your actual question. Ooh, well, um, well, yeah. yeah. Um, most of the stuff is not like that. Right. Um, uh, most of the stuff is um, biases. You'll, you'll get that a lot. I mean, that'll be true anywhere. And some of the reason will be, look, in a psychology book, you have to cover lots of topics. You, you have a 800-page psychology book that's covering every general topic in psychology. I sort of get that you kind of have to gloss over things, but there are cases where it is misleading, and I would say irresponsible. I mean, if you say that spanking leads to behavioral problems and you don't 
address the fact that that is an extremely controversial claim with evidence on both sides. It is not clear at all. But if you find a textbook, which you will, that explains that it does lead to behavior, I'm sorry, but that's irresponsible. Um, is there a reason they would do that? That is a um, somewhat legitimate reason. It's not like they're trying to screw you over or you know, pull the wool over your eyes. Yeah, uh, that they would probably say, yeah, we have to cover topics quickly. Uh, I, I, as the author, decided that after looking at the evidence, it looked like more, you know, it was weighted towards this than that. Sure, but you, should, you shouldn't give the impression to 18, 19-year-old students who know almost nothing about psychology that things are more established than they actually are. These are students who are trying to figure out what their major is. Some of them are interested in science. And if you, you know, if you come across as making it seem like you're more scientific than you are, or things have been more scientifically established than they are, yeah, I mean, of course that's misleading. Um, so I, I'm basically coming in and showing, in a lot of the cases, I'm coming in and I'm showing the other side. So you've heard this side, okay? I'm not even necessarily, in every case, I'm not necessarily saying that side is incorrect. I'm giving the other side. Right. No, I get that. I get that. Do you think that, because there's a few different problems here uh, that you're exposing, or, or showing up. And one of those problems, of course, is that in a live science, which psychology and psychiatry are, these are progressive, continuing activities that people are doing research on on a daily basis. And with any science, especially when you're all the way out at the cutting or bleeding edge, you have controversial claims made, you have controversial research questions proposed, and then research done in order to confirm or, or you know, uh, disprove said research questions. That's the scientific process. And it seems that a lot of this has to do with breakdowns in the communication of that process or the interpretation of the process's results. It's not just psychology that suffers from this. We see this in every every type of science where there is a science being carried out. There is the interpretation of that science that's been carried out. In other words, a scientist writes a research paper. They, 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 this is the results we got. Here's what we think that means. That gets peer-reviewed. It gets published for the purpose of everybody being able to tear the damn thing apart from one side, up one side and down the other. That's the intention of, of getting these things published, or at least it should be according to the scientific method. <laughs> then you have people interpret those papers because common regular folks like you and I, unless we're doing you know academic study, don't read these papers. They are hard to read. Academia writes in its own kind of language. So we have these interpreters, textbook writers, magazine authors, media pundits, right? People, journalists, people who are going to write about science. And it seems to me from what I was reading in your book and what we've talked about and certainly what we see every day on social media 
It seems the breakdown in a lot of this is at the point of the science communicators. I went on this big long roll here to kind of lay out how this stuff kind of works in the real world. Because you can you could imagine that we're pointing the fickle finger of accusation at the scientists when in fact there's more to this ecosystem, you know. And I'm and I wanted to get your views on that. Now that I've kind of modeled this whole well, thing here, what what's you what do you think about what I'm talking about here? Well, I don't want to point the finger, and I, I try my best throughout the book. Um, if I say, for example, if I say, it, let's say I find a psychologist who mistakenly re, uh, refers to hypnosis as a trance. Uh, you'll occasionally still see this. Uh, hypnosis, we know, I mean, hypnosis does not produce a trance, but you will it, still occasionally it see psychology. We can get into that if you want. Yeah, we'll uh, have to, yeah, but okay. You will, you will still see sometimes see psychologists, um, usually who don't work in the field, use the word trance and not put it in quotes. I would put it in quotes. I mean, I do have it in the book in quotes. Um, I wouldn't call that person out. Like Tom Smith said, so so when you say point the finger, I'm not trying to point the finger. I'm using this as an interesting way or angle of, 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 of um, talking about interesting ideas. That's the way I look at it. Well, like, fair enough, but your book title does say lies your psychologist told you. I mean, that's a rather accusatory statement, so. Uh, yeah, it, it gets a reaction. Yeah, uh, it does. <laughs> I agree. Uh, by lie, I do want to be clear. By lie, I mean falsehood. Uh, if you look up, there is a definition. You know definitions from oh, your. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> oh, yeah. So uh, you're saying it's not but, necessarily malicious intent. There isn't, I didn't know this because we don't actually, nobody uses lie in this way, mm-hmm. uh, but there is a form of lie that is, it's not necessarily intentional. Um, you know, if you've said somebody's lying, they're going to get pretty defensive. Um, so I understand that, but I am, I am, I found some topics that I thought were really interesting mm-hmm. um, and controversial. And it was amazing that I could find, um, the experts who studied the thing were saying one thing. And I found so many, not only uh, does the general audience not understand it, not, not understand what they've found, but I found a lot of people even in their field, and it's expected that they would. Um, so, for example, antidepressants. Um, you know, that's, I, I keep going back to that. There's one other thing I wanted to say, Chris. You had mentioned about um, this, this not being specific to psychology. Mm-hmm. It's absolutely, it's absolutely right. Um, I just happen to be interested in psychology. Right. Uh, uh, medical um, science probably has it worse in a lot of ways in terms of the replication um, crisis. I think uh, the medical um, science beat out psychology in terms of it, uh, ever since 2011, psychology has been going through a replication crisis where studies are not replicating. Um, and it's a really big deal. And um, but psychology is certain, you know, and some of the reason it's people like Diedrich Staple, you know, it's people who are who are making up. But that's that's a very 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 small percent. Um, it, a lot of it has to do with what's called uh, p hacking or cherry picking data, mostly unintentional. Um, a, a, a psychologist wants to get published. You're not going to publish negative results. You're going to. Be biased. You're going to kind of cherry pick a finding 
And what's, what happens is you probably are going to get a, a false positive. And so somebody comes by and tries to replicate your study and it doesn't replicate. And this has happened over and over out of a hundred studies, a team, the Re reproducibility project, a uh, team of hundreds of psychologists at, at many different universities. Um, they did a hundred studies. They replicated 65% of them failed 80% for social psychology. Um, the numbers are probably much higher than they were. And the reason is because those numbers I just gave you were from the most prestigious journals. So if you looked at the other journals, the number would probably be in the 90s that didn't replicate. Well, let's, <laughs> let's go ahead and talk about this for a second because I'm glad you brought up the replication crisis. I was going to bring this up specifically at some point during this. So let's get into it because <laughs> Uh, have you heard of, I think it was two years ago now, um, Peter Bogosian, Helen Pluckrose, James Lindsay wrote, I believe, about 10 or 20 uh, articles, academic-grade articles that they literally made up. Oh, uh, Evergreen, like Evergreen... College. Yeah, yeah, not the, not the Evergreen College, but it was kind of a response to some of the oh, okay. critical critical race theory and and some oh. of the you know truth is relative sort of uh, social justice camp kind of academia that's being done. Uh -huh. They did this specifically on purpose to sort of punk or show that you didn't have to do real science in order to get published in certain academic journals where peer review happened. These were peer, these articles that they published were peer reviewed. One of them, uh, I don't know if this is one of the ones that actually made it all the way through the line to publication, but certainly was in the process and had gotten some degree of review already was they just basically quoted out of Mein Kampf. Yeah. Right. Just reworded it. Just took uh -huh. the whole section, right, and reworded it, talking about, you know, social justice or queer theory or something like that. So, um, you know, whatever legitimacy might be in these fields or might be being pursued, when you can get papers written that are more ideological than scientific and push them through a peer review process and get them published, clearly there's a problem. And their effort, it was more in the social science, it was more in sociology than it was psychology as such. But these two things kind of run very close together in certain areas, and this is one of them. Um, is this the kind of thing that you're trying to point up with this as well? Or is it just kind of focused on, well, this claim and this claim and this claim, and let's sort those out? I, I wouldn't necessarily look at it as a pattern. I, I don't really look at it so much as a pattern. Um, other than bias, um, I think that I, I was going to write about what you're talking about, except that, like you said, it wasn't really a matter of psychology. Um, I, I've got something that might be worse than that, arguably, is worse. It's worse because they clearly made something up. Um, in part of the replication crisis, some of these, uh, there were a couple researchers who wanted to show that you could that you could get any effect that you wanted to. Mm -hmm. Now these were not fraudsters; they were trying to expose something, right? Like like in this case. So what they did was 
to show how mis how misleading statistics could be used. They um, they had students listen to the Beatles song "When I'm 64," and they showed on paper at the end of the song the students each became one and a half years younger. <laughs> okay, how they did they, able how to they do this. that? Well, I don't they understand. They were able to show this statistically, just with data, just with manipulating data, and they, they were able to. And what they said was, "This, what we did, we did nothing unusual." So the effect that now the difference is, we did this on purpose. We were trying to show something, right? We did we we did this on purpose, um, but we didn't use any tricks in statistics that other psychologists or social sciences, again, not picking just on psychology. We're doing. So the replication crisis is a big deal in lots of different fields. Don't get me wrong. I focused on psychology. Um, in psychology, it's a little scary, too, because 40% um, of uh, professors, introductory psychology professors, have said that the replication crisis has, they have not changed their curriculum at all. They, they haven't changed anything from, from that. And then 20% of psychology professors said they weren't familiar with the replication crisis. Um, and so, I mean, from as somebody who cares about this stuff, uh, even though I'm no longer a student, it's not just the students, right? It's not just the undergraduate students. This stuff gets passed on. Look at somebody like Malcolm Gladwell. A lot of the stuff that got recalled was stuff that Malcolm Gladwell had published. Um, so, uh, if you ever read the book Blink, I haven't, but I'm familiar with it. Um, it's got a lot of stuff that involves priming. Um, John Barg, a real well-known, um, Yale psychologist, his research has been called into question over the last few years. He had some real famous studies, classic experiments. One of them was the elderly walking study. He would have a group of participants, two groups. One group would read a word, uh, one group would read a list of words. Their words were just random words, and they had to put the words together. They had to just make sentences. Another group had a list of words, but all the words were about elderly people, unbeknownst to them. They just happened to be like Florida, you know, senile, you know, Biden, you know, whatever. And they had to put, and they put the words together. Um, they were then told that the study was over. Thank you. Grab your stuff and you can go on. In the hallway, a spy was secretly timing them. The people who rearranged the elderly words walked slower mm -hmm. than the other group. This study has been cited more than a thousand times. It's a classic in psychology. He had another classic, which was um, a priming study that involved um, you get on an elevator. Do you know, do you know this one? Mm -hmm. So you get on an elevator with the, um, the research assistant. Research assistant doesn't tell you that the study has started. They say, will you hold my uh, water or coffee? It was coffee, but one coffee would be cold. If they handed you the other one, it was hot. Hold that while I write something down. They take it back. You go into the room. Now they tell you the study started. They give you a story to read, and then they ask you to write about what this person is like. 
people who had held the cold coffee viewed the person as cold. People who held the warm coffee viewed the person as warm. Um, very again, a, very a, a, a statistical tendency in that direction. We should yeah. say it wasn't like a hundred percent of people. No, of course not. It rarely is. And uh, but major study. Well, this has not been able to be. Re- I mean, several people from several universities have tried to replicate in teams, and they haven't been able to replicate any. I didn't even tell you all of them, but there's other part studies too. Haven't been able to re- replicate them. Um. One of the researchers who tried to replicate it said, I find this very troublesome. Well, Barg shot back, went out into uh, psychology today and called the researchers incompetent, Uh, immediately took down the post. And, you know, I think he was defensive because the insinuation is he made shit up. I don't think that, I mean, I certainly think that it's, it's, it's highly likely he didn't. I, I, you know, I'm, I'm not saying that he did. It's, it's unlikely he made shit up. Um, but that's the way things have been going in this field. And uh, it's not just for uh, recent studies. The, the vast majority of psychological studies haven't been retested. So you have all these classic studies. Now, the Stanford Prison Experiment has, the Milgram study, uh, a lot of these studies they're hard to retest. You can't even really do them. Yeah, nobody's going to be doing Stanford Prison again. Yeah, so they have to do these little changes to them. Um, but, you know, they'll do them like computerized, stuff like that. But um, but the vast majority of these studies have never been retested. And so, you know, that's a problem, whether you're a psychology student or whether you're reading a popular psychology Well, this is fascinating because, you know, Stanford comes up all the time. Now, ash conformity has been done around the world many, 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 many times. And it's interesting how you'll actually get different percentages depending on where you do it um, and how you and how you might go about doing it. I mean, I just happened to be on this university study where we dug into some of that. And it was interesting because, like, for example, when they did it in Japan, the guys weren't conforming, but the women were. That was interesting. There was actually a gender difference there in in one study. Okay, right? So you can't say 60% of people or 30% of people or whatever percent of people on a broad basis are going to do much of anything in terms of conformity because it depends on other factors like culture, upbringing, location, right? Geography, etc. So it's kind of interesting that there are a number of things that are going on here, I think, that are explanations for why bad science happens or why good science is communicated badly. Uh, yeah, I think that's right. And I think that you'll, you might have different answers if you're talking about different areas. So if you're talking about some of these classic experiments, mm-hmm. some of the problems were psychologists had just not been doing experiments for very long when, when these experiments had happened. These, I mean, if a psychologist would never, even with the ethical, even without the ethical constraint, would never run experiments the way that these people were running experiments. Zimbardo's standing around in the middle of the study, you can't do that. Nobody would do that today. Of course that's going to affect the outcome of the study. You've got um, uh, Milgram in the Milgram study, shouting at people, telling them. I mean, yours yours is the first time I've ever heard that. So that was interesting to me. Yeah, Um, again, he shouldn't have even been in the study. Um, You would 
uh, it's called demand. Uh, I'm trying to think. Demand characteristics. Uh, I think is the term. You're you're supposed to um, control for the idea that your presence would influence the actions of the participants, mm-hmm. and so. Um, the part, you don't want the participants thinking, what would this guy want me to be doing? And right. so in, in the case of the Stanford prison experiment, and I think we're, we're juggling like three experiments. I know. <laughs> <laughs> but, but with the Stanford prison experiment, um, you had, you just had, I'm sorry, you just had so many issues that, I mean, this is why Peter Gray will, refuses to include the Stanford prison experiment in his, it's the most, it's probably the most famous psychology experiment of all time. There was a movie made about it. Um, he refuses to put it in his psychology textbook because he thinks that there's nothing that we can say. Surely we learned from it. There were just too many issues. Zimbardo from the start was telling the guards what he expected from them. See now, that's not necessarily. See now, I'm gonna I'm gonna push back on this because I don't know where you're getting this information from. Not Zimbardo, and he was there, and he said he so, didn't do that. I so, know. He says he didn't. Are you calling I him know. a liar? Uh, well, I mean, if you read his own book, uh, if you read his book, The Lucifer Effect, yeah, um, in it he writes down what he said. It's very clear. He does not outright say you need to go and be abusive. Mm-hmm. No, if you read what he says in his uh, his memoir, it is very clear what he expects, and you don't have to take my word for it. They did a study. I'll come to the study in a second. Um, you also have the warden, who was played by a student, who was telling one of the guards, "The guards need to know that they have to be tough." You have. Um, uh, a, a study where uh, people took the experiment to a group of students. This is like modern day in the last 10, 15 years. Took the study and explained to these students who didn't know about the Stanford experiment. Here's the setup. How would you expect the guards to behave? This guy is going to be there standing there. Would you expect the guards to be like sitting around drinking tea or would you? And they, of course, the vast majority of them were like, yeah, the guards are going to be cruel. Like, it's just obvious by looking at the setup of the study. Um, look, is this debatable? Do I know for sure? I'm not even claiming, Chris, that the Stanford prison experiment is invalid. All I'm saying is. It really sucks that he didn't get it right because we can't get it right now. And you know what? I hate, I hate to say this. I don't know if you ever had this thought. I think about this sometimes. Like you realize that like North Korea or like China could do this stuff. And like we could find out a lot of really, I mean, you don't want it to be done, obviously. Well, I mean, the Stanford Prison Experiment wasn't even that bad. But there's a lot of like interesting stuff we could find out about human nature that we could never do, even in the 1971 when the Stanford Prison Experiment. Well, exactly. And here's and, and let me clarify: as a literally as a student of psychology right now myself, yeah, and right. someone who is studying this material, 
This is not a disrelated thing to what I'm working on right now. Um, the way I perceive this, or the way I think about the Stanford Prison Experiment, is that it was a one-off experiment that, because we now have ethics in research, we would never, ever be able to replicate again. And I look at it as something that informs, not dictates conclusions. Uh, the Stanford Prison Experiment doesn't exist in a vacuum. A good science recognizes no one study exists in a vacuum. The entire point of studies is to replicate them or to come, uh, come up with conclusions that could be somehow you know, utilized in order to be replicated, to be reproduced, because we're trying to discover truth. We're trying to discover how things actually work. And I use the Stanford Prison Experiment as informative to what we see in prisons, in concentration camps, past and present, and the, and the role of roles, identity, you know, and, and how, how does that affect view and behavior. And I think to that degree, it's informative, but I would never say the Stanford Prison Experiment or any one study is conclusive of anything. I think that would be good science to, to approach things that way. Do, do you agree? Of course. Um, the, the Stanford Prison Experiment, I mean, would I use it to bolster an argument? Yeah, maybe if I wanted to get one over on a friend or something. But in my honest opinion, mm -hmm. um, I probably wouldn't. Um, I just think that there's too many issues with it. But, um, you know, and there are other, and I certainly, I, I just think it would be too far reaching to say that it would it help explain what goes on in, in prisons or Abu Ghraib. It might. It certainly might. I'm not saying that it doesn't, but I'm, I'm just skeptical about it. Um, in terms of, you had brought up the, um, was it the ash? Yeah, experiment? conformity. Yeah, they, yeah. Uh, yeah. So the, 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 my issue with the conformity experiment wasn't that, um, that there was a problem that was similar to Milgram buttoning himself in, uh, button in or, uh, or uh, Zimbardo. It, with the ash experiment, it was that nobody would know this from reading a psychology textbook. But the majority, like 70% of people, did not go along with the group. But when you read a textbook, it talks about the conformity test. Ash didn't even view this as a conformity test. He viewed it as an independent thinking test. So for him... It was, I'm going to show you how, how people think independently. And it's got the angle. I mean, I agree. It's a better angle is to go, wow, look at this conformity. And so when you read textbooks, the majority of textbooks don't mention the fact that the majority of participants didn't conform in the study. But doesn't that, doesn't that, I mean, I cite the Japanese study, for example. So you're referring to his original study not the hundreds of replications yeah. of it no, where different results have been found. You have, you have, like you said, I mean, I, I've heard that math and engineer students, yep. the number's even, the number's even lower. That's right. No, I'm talking about the way it's presented as the ASH conformity right. study, the right. way it's, you know, the original study. Um, it's very misleading. Is it a huge deal? I mean, it depends, Chris. Psychology is built on classic stories and classic experiments, okay? 
So some of the stories are like Phineas Gage, one of the most famous psychological patient, one of the most famous, who had a, you know, three foot steel rod shoot through his skull and land a hundred feet away. And he stood up and talked and uh, you had. The, See, and I, uh, I read a very different account of that. So the standing up and talking thing is fascinating to me because I'm like, where is he getting that from? I, that's not what I read. You'll read a different account depending on whatever book you read. The right. American the American Psychological Association in the last few years has um, acknowledged um, that these ones, these other ones, and the Gage one um, are uh, what they call tall tales. There's been so much misinformation spread about. So there's the Gage one in my, in my book. I go through another real popular one in psychology textbooks is. Um, Kitty Genovese, um, the bystander effect, that she was raped and stabbed. There were apparently 38 witnesses who saw it. None of them did anything about it. It's a complete, I'd say lie. I mean, however you wanted to find lie. New York Times reported about it. When they first reported on it, they were the first ones. They, there was no mention of witnesses. Then they then reported a day later or so, there were 38 uh, people stood by and watched as this woman was raped and stabbed repeatedly. They did nothing. Well, it's been uncovered. This was just not true at all. Um, that first off, there was likely only one witness who saw the murder, who saw the stabbing. There were multiple people who saw the rape. At least one of them called the police. Nine one one did not exist. The police did not answer the phone. Because of this case, 911 now exists. Okay, you have, now that's the bystander effect. I don't want to go on too long. I'll just say it real quick. Bystander effect, which a lot of people know about, I'm not saying the bystander effect is false. The bystander effect is true. The problem is it's based on a false story. Um, then you have the POW story. This is another one. You don't see this as often because people are learning more about it. It used to be very widely believed that American POWs had been brainwashed uh, by the Korean military. Um, it had been, been believed for decades. Uh, now we know that it's more of a story of torture than of brainwashing. Um, so that story will not does not appear as much in psychology textbooks. Um, thankfully, fewer and fewer psychologists are using the term of brainwashing. Um, some might use, I mean, you would know better than me, co co coercive persuasion, I think, or coercive uh, control, coercive persuasion. Yeah. 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 Undue yeah. influence. So, so you have these classic stories, um, and then you have uh, classic experiments the Little Albert experiment, the Ash experiment, you know, the Milgram experiment. So it sounds like what you really, I mean, it would almost be that the title of your book or subtitle of it could be Urban Legends, you know, about psychology. Because, well, myths, myths of popular psychology was already taken. Yeah, because uh, <laughs> it's kind um, of because it's kind of like that's that's almost the status of this. It's not that these things are based on complete whole cloth bullshit, but it's a little bit of over the decades here because what you know we're talking about some of these things that happened over 100 years ago at this point or almost i mean phineas gage for example was a long time ago 
you have a little bit of this, you know, social telephone game too going on where things don't get reproduced, you know, that well over time. And they and they attain the status of like an urban legend. Well, if you didn't have the data, I would say that that's that's fine. I mean, that, that would be understandable. But when you actually have data, um, when you actually have evidence pointing to one side, it makes sense to write about that and not make up details that weren't there. So in like the 38 witnesses, I get it. The New York Times did say there were 38 witnesses. I'm not blaming psychologists in 1985 for writing that. But it was debunked like 10 years ago. And up until at least five years ago, it was sometimes, not that much, probably less than 20% of the time, still being published. Again, Chris, a lot of this stuff, there's no, I can't say there's necessarily, I have to think about it, but there's not necessarily any one of these lies that is just like, oh my God, all of these people believe in it. It's like, it's like these three lies, well, they're in these psychology books. This lie, uh, like the ape language one, uh, uh, Daniel Gilbert wrote about it in Stumbling on Happiness. He made the error. Um, a few people have made that error. Um, you know, I could go through a few other lies and it's like few here, few there. Sometimes it's not a huge number of people, but it's too much, okay? When it's in a popular book written by a psychologist or it's being taught to thousands and thou hundreds of, thou of thousands of students who are taking psychology courses. And look, if you're in a psychology course, Chris, and you can simply Google um, Phineas Gage or you can Google uh, uh, bystander effect, Kitty Genovese, and find out that what's in your book isn't factual, how does that look? See, but that's see, but that's the funny thing because I've never had any need or want to Google Phineas Gage because the conclusion of Phineas Gage is that your brain has something to do with your personality, and if you alter it physically, your personality could change. And guess what? It did. And no part of Phineas Gage's story, even the debunked one, as I read about in, in you know in your book says that that's not the case. So the specifics of, you know, him getting up and walking around afterwards, that, that, that was shocking to me because that's definitely not the account that I read. And I thought, huh, okay, well, somebody's getting something wrong somewhere along the line here. But I never walked away from that with anything other than the principle that the brain matters when it comes to personality. Now we have spent 100 years dissecting brains, which we weren't doing for a millennia before that, and figuring out, well, okay, what part of the brain affects what part of the personality, but that's what opened the door to the very idea, hey, there's something to this, you know? No, so no. I, so no, no. I, I almost yeah. sort of wonder a little bit about, well, are we going to, you know, I don't want to throw the baby out with the bathwater, I guess yeah. is really Chris, where I'm trying to go with this. Chris, I would you tell know. you that for that example, I, it's a little inside baseball, I would admit. I'm, I'm, I'm doing a little inside baseball. Like if you're really, if you're really into this stuff, yeah. you're going to want to know that this story is not totally true. Right. Is it going to completely change? No. Um, the brainwashing thing, though, I, I think is, is important. Yeah. Um, no, I but, agree with you. And it, and it takes look, some work to dig that up. Yeah. Uh, but let me, 
the, the thing with Phineas Gage, yeah, I mean, it's an interesting story. I wanted to tell the story. It, 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 was, uh, it showed that you could have damage to an, one area of the brain and it not affect another. Um, look, the, the simple problem was there was just people were all over the place with the story. Right. There, were, there, were, there were reports that the guy was walking around the rest of his life with the thing three foot sticking through his skull. Right. I mean, look, Chris, if you want to be a if you want to be a science, I mean, come on, just get it right. I mean, I, I, I don't know. Maybe, maybe my standards here are too high. <laughs> no, maybe I'm too hard on it. But it's like just like just get the facts right. If I can sit here on my phone right now, Chris, and Google Phineas Gage, and it's going to come up with Richard Griggs at University of So and So, who breaks down that 23 psychology books are still telling this story falsely. And it just does. It's a bad look. It's just, it's just I a agree. bad look. That's all. I completely agree with you. And, um, and and my pushback is not obviously an effort to, you know, okay, let's keep propagating bullshit. It's just, you know, there's a there are there are points to this stuff. But I um but I also need to push back a little bit because like I said, I you know, there's a tendency of people, and I'm surely, surely you have noticed this, of throwing out the baby with the bathwater, right? It's like it's a binary thing. Oh, the Phineas Gage thing is total horseshit. Okay, good. Now I don't have to think about any aspect of that as an as as a lesson or as something to be learned from that because it's all just bullshit. And lazy thinkers would tend to go in that direction. So that's why you hear me going, well, hang on, there's something to be learned from this, even in its altered state. But I'm on the same page with you that I want accuracy. So I just I, I kind of wonder who's writing these textbooks though. You know? <laughs> it's you know what and people are getting better. There's a guy, David Myers, um, brilliant psychologist. He writes a lot of them. And he, I, I've reached out to him recently. He is making an effort. He said he is responding to these things. And he's, uh, he is making changes. Um, look, you're absolutely right. A lot of people can be irrational. I have conversations where you explain something like this and the person says, so your conclusion's this? And you're like, no, my conclusion is what I just said it was. Uh, that's why I only have conversations with other philosophers. Um, but no, you know, so seriously, it's, it's just kind of, um, I don't know. I just, I guess I felt that that wasn't my responsibility. It, oh, I, yeah, I, wanted, yeah. I wanted to, I wanted to tell an interesting, fun story. I wanted to get my point across and I wanted to avoid doing something that drives me absolutely nuts. And that is giving people too much information. I love my, my brother uh, who's reading the book right now. He, he said to me, I take it as a great compliment, whether he meant it or not. He said, I was reading about the marshmallow test in your book. And he goes at the end of it. I thought, I want to know more about this. And then you went on to another topic. And I said, thank you. I don't even know if he meant to be complimenting, but I was like, thank you. That to me is like the biggest cut because every book, it seems like every book I read, I'm like, dude, you didn't have to tell me all of these details. Like just get to the point. So yeah, with some of the stuff in the book like that, I'm going to tell you, I tell you that that entire Phineas Gage story probably is one page. You know what I mean? Yeah, absolutely. No, I'm tracking on that. What, um, well, I am, but I, but I, you know, I'm kind of a person who likes to at least theoretically solve these problems. 
I, you know, because I hate, I hate, not, not you. I don't, I'm not even inferring that you're doing this. I'm just talking in general terms here. You know, the, the, here's the dead fish. Boom, there it is on the table. Deal with it. Isn't that awful? That sucks, right? This is this is a tone of of reporting that occurs in our modern age a lot. The dead fish, right? Um, and very little about well, okay. So what do we do about it? What how how do we not have dead fish on the table anymore? What do we what are we supposed to do here? Because I because I feel that if I don't put that there, or if that's not put there by others, that it just is, you know, salacious or awful or, or a train wreck just for, you know, it's rubbernecking and it's not useful or productive. My attitude, totally, you know, it's just my thing. So, so I'm curious though, because you've done all this research and you have gone through all these cases and I'm sort of imagining that you might mentally or or otherwise have sort of maybe done some addition and subtraction on, you know, where is this stuff coming from? You talk about textbooks a lot, for example, and, and I agree. I'm sure that the science communication aspect of this is a big part of this, but I don't know. Is that, I bring it up as one thing, is that the biggest problem here is that we lack good science communication and interpretation, or is there something else going on? Clearly, we have instances, a couple you cited, of just straight up fraud. But you mentioned, but you mentioned those are the minority. That's so. What's in the majority? There, I don't think there's one thing. I mean, it's, oh, it's okay. hard. To, it's hard to say. I mean, you have you have an incredibly complex field with so much going on. You have a, as you said, live science, ever changing. Um, I don't know that there's one thing that's going on and I don't know that I'm the right person. I don't know if I would believe myself if I told you what the answer, you know, is. Okay. Uh, I, I would ask, you know, scientists and I don't think that they would give me one answer. I think it would just depend on the case in the hypnotic trance case. You don't, I don't know that you see it all that frequently anymore, but you still do see the word trance. The problem with the word trance is, and look, this might get down to philosophical differences, which would be one um, contribution. Does hypnosis produce a trance? Well, since 1933, there have been studies showing that whether you do a hypnotic induction or not, people are just as responsive to suggestion. So what's the point of hypnosis? Um, the point of hypnosis would be some people can be more slightly, not by much, slightly more responsive when you give them hypnosis. Hypnosis often backfires. And it backfires because somebody comes into it thinking, oh, this, this sounds scary. What is this thing? So a lot of people won't even mention the word hypnosis. Um, hypnosis producing a trance. There is scant evidence that hypnosis produces anything like a trance. There is no consistent evidence that hypnosis produces a trance. Hypnosis is a normal state of wakefulness. It, it differs in degree 
rather than kind. It, it is, you're not asleep. Mm-hmm. You can be just as responsive um, to suggestion while you are on a treadmill as sitting in a chair. Mm-hmm. Hi, hi. Okay, good. Let's actually clarify the word trance because it's a word I use often. And I've used it often to describe what Dianetics is doing to, to a person. Um, I have not considered the trance state or being in a trance as the destructive or harmful or even controversial part of the process. Um, I believe the suggestions that are made and the way those suggestions are made and the social pressures involved with those suggestions, I think, is where you know, the manipulation and potentially abuse lie. Uh, Of course, there's also the matter of suggesting that you can cure your ailments by examining your past. Another point you've brought up in the book that is that itself even a valid point of therapy. But regardless of that, I want to I want to focus on trance for a second because I because you have have said here you are a trained hypnotist so I I want to interrogate you on this this is fascinating to me I have I don't it, talk to that many hypnotists amateur and listen this is not how I know this oh okay okay oh, not, no 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 I'm so glad you brought that up yeah um, no my training in hypnosis taught me all the wrong things oh. So when I studied hypnosis, I was just like everybody else who thinks you can make somebody go into a trance without their, um, without their willingness. You can, um, hypnosis is like a sleep state. Uh, and, oh, here's the big one. You'll hear a lot. Anybody can be hypnotized. Ah, okay. Yeah. All all of the above are not true. Hypnotherapists very commonly say that anybody can be hypnotized. I mean, I guess it makes sense. Money. Um, (laughs) Clinical psychologists, not so much. What clinical psychologists, what what you'll find there um, would be trance. um, That might be about it. Would Would be calling it a trance. Now, what's the reason they're calling it a trance? You know what? I don't know. They, they believe that it is a trance. Um, they use the word because that's the way other people use it. Um, I use the word trance. It's hard not to use the word trance. I try to put it in quotes. Um, hypnosis doesn't produce a trance. Um, people, people at magic shows are never in a trance. Um, you know, most people who get hypnotized say, I, I wasn't hypnotized. They, they say I was not hypnotized. Um, and they were, but... Well, that's the thing. I mean, that's the thing. I, you know, asking a person who has undergone an experience to report on that experience is often not... You're right. not going to get objective reporting. But the, the point I'm, I'm saying is they, they don't come out going, oh, like, um, I've, I've just woken up. Like, <laughs> I get it, yes. They, 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 they yes. go, I don't know. I just had my eyes closed and you were talking to me. Right. Like, nothing happened. Um, and it's like, yeah, because... That's what hypnosis is. It's a normal state of wakefulness. It's if you've ever meditated, um, meditation right. is very much like hypnosis. The difference is that meditation you don't really do for a purpose while you're doing. You're supposed to not be thinking. Right. With hypnosis, you're doing it for something like you're trying to quit smoking or lose weight. So it's that same kind of state, but it makes you more, so a little bit more suggestive. 
Uh, but right. like I said, you don't need uh, one hypno one hypnotic induction is just as good as the next one. Uh, the only determination of a hypnotic induction is whatever the person feels works for them. Hypnosis is not done to you. The person does hypnosis to themselves. All hypnosis is self-hypnosis. Um, and yeah. I, I, I might push back on that one a bit, but okay. Um, I, I, I think I think we're tracking. I would you agree that uh, with your understanding of of trance, quote unquote, would you agree that say students in a classroom, you know, can you know when you get into that mode where you're just kind of sitting there and information's coming in and you're kind of focused on the droning voice of the teacher and it's just and you just kind of not fade out totally, but not totally faded in either. You know what I mean? That's sort yeah, of almost it, you, you don't you wouldn't you don't want to say semi-conscious because it's not really that bad. But I think I know what you're talking about, but I, I just I want to try to avoid thinking of this as like a state. OK, because it's not that's what I'm saying is that it's not a state. It's mm. not a it's not a trance state. And so if. If that's I, so, that's why I'm, I'm trying to avoid thinking of it as person going in to hypnosis. It suggests that they're they're changing. They're going into another state. Hypnosis doesn't produce a trance state. It's a normal state, just like yours right now, except it's slightly different. So, when well, you're what's happy, the, what's slightly different about it exactly? Uh, you're more focused. Okay. You could be more relaxed. You could be not necessarily. Um, I mean, you could be running on a treadmill, like I said. Mm -hmm. You're more, you're more focused. You are more aware, um, not necessarily of of everything, but aware of something, um, of of any one thing, whatever you're supposed to be aware of in that situation. All right, fair enough. My friend John Atac has called it guided imagination. Mm -hmm. That's how he describes hypnosis. Yeah, for that guided visualization, yeah. Yeah, fair enough. Well, the myths, I, I will absolutely agree with you that while we might disagree on the specifics of a state or perceptive state or however you want to put that, I will certainly agree with you all day long that the myths and nonsense connected with hypnosis are legion and mostly ridiculous. And I and it's absolutely true that you're not going to put somebody into a state like that or, sorry, I hypnotize somebody <laughs> if they don't want to be. You know, and that sort of thing. I mean, if they're actively resisting it, then you're going to definitely have to use a different approach to chill them out and lower their suspicions and that sort of thing. Interesting stuff. So really, it's more a matter of you're pushing back on a lot of this to the matter of uh, either the lies, the nonsense that gets added to this stuff, or the degree to which it is communicated about. You know, the brainwashing scam of scare, scam, however you want to put that, of the 1950s was was a cultural phenomenon. It was not an isolated incident in science. It was. It had everything to do with the Red Scare and McCarthyism and and post World War II Cold War, you know, ramp up and distrust and suspicion and paranoia. And it was fascinating. It's a fascinating study if you really have the time to go all in on the the evolution of the concept of brainwashing. It's pretty interesting stuff. And I had to do that because. <laughs> Because the most one of the most seminal works on that topic is also one of the most seminal works on the topic of undue influence and cult milieu control and all of that, and that is Robert Lifton's work on 
you know, the uh, psychology of totalism. Mm -hmm. uh, thought reform is yeah. what he called it. He didn't call it brainwashing. He said, yeah, that's not, that's, that's not what we're talking about right now. But yeah, we yeah. are talking about reforming people's thoughts yeah. and, te and techniques yeah, the, used to do that. You know, The earliest uh, usage wash brain was, yeah. uh, I think, 1950. It referred to Mao. Um, but the CIA, I think, was calling it brainwashing. They were trying to figure out. They did a bunch of real interesting stuff in a project codenamed MKUltra. Um, they were LSD, you know, drug, drugging prostitutes, uh, mental patients without their knowledge, yep. um, you know, uh, hypnosis, electroshock, um, CIA was doing it. The, the guy running the program was a, a guy named, uh, Donald Ewan. He, uh, he was out of, uh, he was the Canadian psychiatry association president. And, um, they were, I mean, they, they had a, a brothel, um, safe house in San Francisco where um, th they would bring um, men, Johns, and the uh, prostitutes would bring them upstairs and behind a two-way mirror, this uh, CIA guy uh, who was running it at the time um, would be behind the mirror checking out what, what the interaction, the woman would slip LSD into the Johns drink and then they'd see what would happen. And the guy promise the women, you know, if anything ever happens to you with the law, you know, we'll help you out. And so all this stuff was going on because the CIA was panicking about this brainwashing that was going on. Um, certainly something was going on. The, the, the problem with the term brainwashing is that it's misleading. It wasn't necessarily misleading back then. Nobody knew what was going on. So the term brainwashing, it made sense. Some magical, mysterious mind control thing is happening and we don't understand. It. And so, um, but now when you talk about brainwashing, that's what a lot of people think. That it's like this thing, it's like a spell. And, and it's brainwashing is a set of standard persuasion methods that are understood by social psychologists today. Um, and so that's that's my issue with, with using the term brainwashing. Absolutely. It's a total corruption because the whole idea at the beginning when you talk about where it came from in China is it, it was it's a purity thing. It's not about it's not about brainwashing where they're going to empty your mind and fill it with what they want. It's about cleaning out the bad elements. It's purity of thought. That's why it's called clean brain. You know, so it's kind of interest or clean mind. It, it, so, it, so it was kind of corrupted from the very beginning in terms of what, what it was that was intended to be being done with it, you know. But Chris, I'll be the first to admit to you that I use this whole thing, lies, as a way, like I said, it's a way <laughs> for me to tell you about stories and things that are fascinating. It's like, how do I combine this topic and how do I combine ape language with positive reinforcement, antidepressants, multiple personality disorder, brainwashing? How do you combine these things? It's like, okay, this is a way to kind of put them all together. Yep. In a good way. I, like I said, I got no argument with a lot of that. It's, it's, it's actually fascinating. And I hope, I, I'm really, really glad actually, because I do hope that people will read your book. And I hope that this does entice them to look 
deeper, to look further, to not to, to take it as a. I, I get from what you're saying that that the intention here is to springboard into this stuff and actually like find out, you know, what which of these things are interesting to you and dive in and find out more about them. From the reader. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it's like I told my dad. I mean, I told my dad. I'm like, look, the first two chapters are, are might be just inside baseball for you. I mean, you might just not care at all about the replication crisis and what psychology students are learning. Maybe you do, maybe you don't. Um, it, this is, you could turn to any chapter, you could start on chapter nine. Um, I have, there's some people who are reviewing the book right now uh, that they're just, they're too important. I just said, look, I don't want to bother you. Well, you just read chapter nine. Uh, you know, Noam Chomsky was called the most important intellectual alive. Uh, I asked him to read two chapters. Uh, you know, I, we'll see how many he ends up reading. But, um, you know, uh, so it's different. You, you, you can kind of just dive in wherever you want to, which is kind of why, you know, I like it. That's great. Yeah. And, and actually, Chris, one thing. Can I do this? Yeah. If, um, if your listeners email me, I will give 15 Kindle copies away for free. If they email me at dylanames at gmail.com. First fifteen. Excellent. I will definitely get that uh, noted in the in the comments here as well. Get that cool. uh, link up there. Yeah, this is good stuff. You know, there's nothing wrong with questioning the the common knowledge. You know, everybody knows kind of crap, especially when, as you mentioned, and are and and and, and I really actually want to reinforce this as that this is not a work of, as you put in your epilogue, of cynicism. This is a work of skepticism. This is a work of critical thinking. You know, this is not a teardown. This is not a deconstruction. This is not a let's get rid of everything. And it's all horrible. And I and I, and I maybe I should have led with that, but I think we I think we kind of got that across. Well, I got that from the late Scott Lilienfeld. So let me give him a little shout out. Uh, he he's the one who we were talking about that and he said, you know, I, he said, just make sure that you're being skeptical and not cynical. Yeah. And I said, yeah, yeah, that's what I meant. But he, he said, yeah, he said, what you're, what you're doing, I like it, but just skepticism, not cynicism. Yeah. And it, yeah, it's a great point. Well, it's an important one because I'll tell you an analogous thing that I've been running into lately that has gotten me quite nihilistic and cynical, and that is the legal system. Um, because I've been watching um, Scientology, the Church of Scientology, be taken to court, uh, you know, in, in various civil suits, and they skate out and skate out and skate out and get off on these things that you, you know, having lived it, knowing other people who lived it, knowing their experiences, knowing that they're legit, that they really did experience what they say they experienced, because I was there, I saw it. It's very difficult to know that and then watch lawyers and judges not get it, and lawyers not present it properly, and all the nonsense that goes on in the legal profession, because that's really what it comes down to, is they're just not making a very good case. And and these poor ex-cult members, trauma survivors, are not getting a fair shake in the justice system when actual crimes were committed against them. And it can be disheartening. It can be very disheartening for people like me. So I so I know what that feels like. That's <laughs> you know, really all I'm trying to say is you start thinking, this is useless. This is not good for anything. Fuck it, you know. I just watched The Vow, uh, which is great. <laughs> yeah. uh, one, one of my good friends is a Scientologist. Should I be speaking to you right now? <laughs> They're going to be upset that you did. Oh, 
Okay. Uh, you didn't know that? Okay. I, I hope, I mean, if this is going to be a problem for you, let me no, know. No, 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 Okay. I mean, I, 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 I'm not saying anything bad. No, you're not. Uh, I'm just letting you know that yeah. I am a declared suppressive person from the Church of Scientology. They believe that everything I say and do is evil and that I must be destroyed. And I'm not even, in, that is that is mild. That is not hyperbole. <laughs> so that's... I know, no, I've, I've heard your channel. Yeah, yeah. So anyway, that's uh, that's where that is at. Um, yeah, I mean, like I said, I, I, I respect him. I respect you. I'm not a Scientologist. I've never been. So I'm just... Yeah, I can, it, talk to whoever, I can talk to whoever I please, you know, I want. Exactly. It should not become a problem for you, but it might well be made a problem for you in that relationship. And I and that's part of why I do what I do is because it shouldn't be. You know, it shouldn't be. And it shouldn't well, be. Let me say for the record, he's a very nice man. He's very successful and he seems very happy. Well, no, good, he is, though. He uh, seems to like Scientology. What, you know, cheers. Know. Good for him. You know, he's not in the Sea Org. That's where the real shit happens. So, that's true. yeah. So fair enough. You know. Yeah. And I'm not saying I don't, you know, I don't know what's going on in the situation. And he doesn't really, he doesn't try to get me into it. Fine. Good. Uh, well, if he ever, you know, if you ever start feeling tempted to approach that topic, please contact me and I'll, I'll, uh, <laughs> I might be able to translate some of the SIO speak for you. I appreciate it. Yeah. All right. Cool. Well, where do you sent me the Kindle version of this guy? And, and like I said, this is a good book and I really do recommend reading it out there, folks. Thank you. Um, where will people find it? Is it at just Amazon or? Yeah, it just came out. Um, just go to Amazon, type in lies your psychologist told you, I, uh, or Dylan Ames. Uh, I think I've got two books up there. And, and get the Kindle or the paperback. I'm just, you know, I'm just trying to get people to read it and hopefully they enjoy it. So like I said, you know, reach out to me and I'll see what I can do for your, for your audience. Your audience only. <laughs> awesome. Okay, good. Well, like I said, we'll get that, uh, we'll get that link down there and that email address and hopefully you'll get some response on this. Dylan, I really want to thank you for taking the time to do this. I really do appreciate uh, the effort that you have put into this and the pushback, you know, because we need... <sighs> It's, you know, any, any science needs this. And the truth of the matter is that we are seeing with the replication crisis and with other factors. I mean, I'm deep in the middle of all of it right now. And I see the errors and the flaws and the problems because science is done by human beings. It's not done by AI. And people are not that great <laughs> at, at, at remembering things, at writing stuff down, and at being consistent. You know, they're yep. kind of bad at those three things. And that makes science a lot harder than it needs to be. Yeah. Well, thank you, Chris. I really enjoyed this. Um, and let me just say one thing to, just to be clear. Uh, every psychologist that I've talked to about this, none of them have been like, oh, God, like, what, what is it? They, every, every one of them has been like, oh, that's either they've said nothing or like, oh, that's an interesting title or angle. Um, so I want to give... It, that's not about me. I want to give them credit. It's not like some adversarial, like, I feel like I'm at, I've started some kind of war. Um, not at all. But if that helps me sell books, then sure, yeah, we're in a war. Fair enough. <laughs> well, controversy does sell. It does. It's true. Yeah. All right. Well, once again, thank you very much, Dylan. And folks out there, uh, like I said, check out the book. If you have enjoyed this conversation, got something out of it, think this channel's worth supporting, 
please do so through Patreon. I'd always appreciate that. Otherwise, I will see you guys next week. And uh, thank you very much for inviting us into your home for this time so that we could educate, inform, and entertain you. (laughs) All right, guys. See you next week. Bye-bye.